Support for this episode of The Seams comes from Feel Good Yarn Company, a Martha Stewart American-made finalist and the creator of Silverspun, an American-made cotton yarn spun with pure silver. Silverspun, the strength of cotton, the feel of cashmere, the healing properties of silver. Learn more at feelgoodyarncompany.com. I'm Jackie Lydon, and this is The Seams. Our motto is clothing is our common thread, and every stitch, a story. It's August, the month of the slow news cycle. In England, the news cycle this time of year is called the silly season, for obvious reasons, stories about crop circles and what have you, but that might not be a bad name for that time of year here in the U.S. Because our leaders are stupid. Our politicians are stupid. So did you see the Republican debate on August the 6th? And did you notice what the Donald and those other guys were wearing? No? Hey, no wonder. Uh, They were all wearing basically the same thing. That's Kate Betts. She's the author of Everyday Icon, Michelle Obama and the Power of Style. She's got a new memoir out, too. It's a really fun read called My Paris Dream, an education in style, slang, and seduction in the great city on the Seine. Well, we haven't had a female president yet, so it's striking that the style of a female candidate and the first lady gets so much attention. Women, especially in the first lady position, are meant to be hostesses. The first lady is the first hostess. And that's where Hillary Clinton got it wrong when she came into the White House as the first lady for the first term, because she moved into the West Wing and she was not a hostess and she had to backtrack and bake cookies and try to recoup that image. And it's also where Michelle Obama really was very clever. And I think she learned from Hillary's mistake She immediately became visually a hostess. If you look at her look, she was basically dressed like a 50s housewife. Very beautifully and very fashionably, in my opinion. But, you know, she was wearing a brightly floral dress that was, you know, nipped in the waist and a cardigan and statement jewelry. It was kitten heels. It's a 50s look. Yeah. And that played beautifully for her. It certainly did. And when we think about Michelle Obama... I also am thinking about Hillary Clinton today, not Hillary Clinton first lady, of course, but Hillary Clinton, Democratic Party front runner. People are going to be commenting on what she wears on her pantsuits. And do you think they're working for her on the campaign trail? I do. I think she can't change her look now because she needs to be consistent. And the pantsuit is her look, and she found it in the last time she campaigned. And I think, you know, she can add colors, she can soften the color palette, she could have more texture, but that's her look and she has to stick to it. She has to be Hillary Clinton in her pantsuit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, politicians in general, I mean, do they have wiggle room? If you think about all the men running here, and now we're going back to the night of August the 6th, all the candidates on the stage, uh, the big stage, um, when you look at what these men, and they were all men, are wearing. I don't know, Kate Betts, what what do you see? Does anyone look convincing sartorially? For men, there are not that many options, obviously, and it probably will become a little bit more interesting when they are actually out in the field, so to speak, not on television, and when they're rolling up their shirt sleeves or wearing a polo shirt or having to adapt some sort of sartorial 
statement that has to do with their location. You know, people are going to be interested in seeing how they appear with their families or their significant other. And that's going to be what's going to give them more of an image kind of boost or an image, you know, a catastrophic image. So what would be the ideal ensemble that, that you would suggest? A lot of these people are going to be taking selfies, glasses, because men have such regimented attire. I, I can't remember reading more about a candidate's glasses than I have over Rick Perry's glasses, which I quite like. I think they're great. But just any general tips? Well, I think one, there are two really important things. One is they have to be consistent as their style evolves or as it becomes more and more familiar to the general public, they have to stick to the signatures that they're presenting stylistically. And the other thing is, and people often forget this, it's a strange kind of mix, a balance that the candidates have to achieve between this sense of kind of inclusiveness and, and warmth and a slightly regal sophistication the Reagans understood that. The Kennedys understood that. I mean, there is a sense that you want them to be slightly elevated stylistically, but you can't be too elevated as to alienate the general public. So I think you have to carry that kind of spirit on the campaign trail. Even, you know, you talk about selfies. I mean, the candidates have to have selfies taken. You know, I know it's a become sort of a time-consuming thing because everybody wants a selfie, but that has to be something that's sort of accounted for in the timing of a lot of these appearances because that is part of that sort of inclusiveness that they have to pay attention to, especially if they want to capture the attention of this young millennial generation. Kate Betts. She's the former editor of Harper's Bazaar and the author of a new memoir, My Paris Dream, an education in style, slang, and seduction in the great city young Seine. Paris has beckoned to a lot of young people in the fashion world, obviously. An American like Kate Betts back in 1986 and a young Roman woman named Elsa Schiaparelli. She began her fashion career there 70 years earlier. In 1916, Scap arrived in Paris, broke, deserted by her husband, and with a little girl to support. Eventually, she became the designer known to the A-list crowd and even rivaled Coco Chanel. So what does Elsa Scaparelli have to do with you today? If you've ever worn the color Shocking Pink, Scaparelli branded that color. Have you ever put on one of those fake tuxedo t-shirts? If you have, you've been under the influence of Elsa Scaparelli. Last year, we did a story about her for NPR. Author Meryl Seacrest had just published a book called Elsa Schiaparelli, a biography. That biography is out in paperback now. And her story is a cautionary tale about how important it is that fashion keep up with the times. Schiaparelli revolutionized fabric. She was the first to use latex and rayon for couture. She loved innovative fabrics like tree bark silk and crushed velvet. She was an inventor the built-in bathing suit bra, 
the wrap dress, the see-through raincoat. She named the color shocking pink. Scaparelli was an original and a force of nature. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the word is debrouillard, but what it means is somebody who gets it done somehow, you know, this kind of thing. In December of 1914, on the eve of World War I, Elsa Schiaparelli had arrived in London, 23 years old. She attended a lecture on the occult theory of theosophy, being given by a charismatic man named William de Wendt de Curlor. And she hears this marvelous man talking, and he's terribly interested in psychic phenomena and the paranormal, hallucinations and hypnosis and regression to past lives, and he's kind of attractive-looking, you know. Can he talk? The next morning, Scaparelli was engaged to de Curler. They married, but he proved to be a charlatan and a cheat. De Curler abandoned her five years later after she gave birth to their only child in New York. From his antics, though, she learned showmanship. It would be called branding today. And her interest in the occult would lead her to the Surrealists and her most noteworthy creative collaborations. The Philadelphia Museum of Art has many of Scaparelli's signature pieces donated by the designer herself. There's one piece for which she's most famous, the lobster dress. It's off-white silk with uh, deep tangerine inset around the bust line and then, of course, the, the vivid tangerine lobster. The lobster dress was created with artist Salvador Dali. The lobster was one of his favorite subconscious symbols. On this dress, the crustacean is set over the woman's, uh, we'll just call it her pelvis. The American divorcee, Wallace Simpson, who shocked the world when she married Edward, Prince of Wales, snapped up the dress for her honeymoon. She was already wearing Scaparelli's clothes by then. She's a risk taker, too. And she has enormous self-confidence. Don't you think the lobster dress is a bit of a... Okay, kids, here I am. This is my trousseau. Dolly and Scaparelli stitched up other things. They once turned a high heel shoe into a hat. The artist Jean Cocteau was another co-conspirator. He created women's faces out of cascading sequins and lavish embroidery, transforming a Scaparelli jacket or gown into a portrait. Then came World War II. Schiaparelli's assistant, Bettina, had married Gaston Bergerie. He was a founder of the pro-fascist Vichy State. That connection gave Schiaparelli access out of France during the early war years, but ultimately tainted her. Everybody, the governments of Germany, France, the U.S., and England, all thought she was a spy. After 1942, she waited out the rest of the war in America, not returning to her Paris atelier until 1946. Seacrest says her work then grew as flat as it had been brilliant. I think Schiaparelli lost her way. She lost herself. She started putting bustles on dresses. I mean, give me a break. What could possibly interest women in, in bustles on dresses. Scaparelli closed her business in 1954 and lived in luxurious retirement. In 1969, she appeared on the American quiz show, What's My Line? Here, blindfolded contestants are trying to guess what the mystery celebrity guest does for a living. Would you say that your name was famous in the world of fashion? Scaparelli answers coyly. 
I would say yes for our guest yes. on that, Mr. Sir. Might you be known as a famous designer of ladies' dresses? Uh, you're getting hot. <laughs> that same year, the CBS correspondent, Charles Collingwood, interviewed her in her sumptuous apartment in Paris. Madame Scaparelli, what are some simple rules that a woman should follow when she goes to a shop to buy a dress? She should buy only the, what she needs, really. The very best and very little. A woman well-dressed doesn't need so many dresses. Elsa Scaparelli, it's kind of crazy. She didn't heed her own advice. She didn't adapt, and her house closed after World War II. She died when she was 83, in 1973. But in 2012, her name and her old design house were revived. Most recently, in July of 2015, Maison Scaparelli showed its fall 2015 haute couture collection, and the designs came out of Elsa's old showrooms right on the Place Vendôme in Paris. To learn more about her design house, visit scaparelli.com. I'll tell you how to spell it. S-C-H-I-A-P-A-R-E-L-L-I.com. Okay, so Elsa Scaparelli didn't keep up with the times. Let's talk about fashion that defines our times, the international best-dressed list. The list turned 75 years old this month. It was invented by one of the greatest names ever in fashion history, Eleanor Lambert. She was the publicist behind Fashion Week, the Council of Fashion Designers of America. She created a lot of things like that. Vanity Fair runs the international best dress list now. We talked to special correspondent Amy Fine Collins about the list. It's actually more of a poll with 2,000 people voting on who makes the cut. And if you think that maybe one day, if you try hard enough and dress really, really well, that you might make it onto the list, I wouldn't hold my breath. You have got to be a person who is prominent. You have to have some kind of impact on the culture generally, which is why if you go back year by year, you can get a glimpse of something that was going on politically, something that was going on artistically, culturally. It becomes a very fascinating social record. Is there anything that would inherently disqualify someone? We are not interested in people who are simply consumers. Often you end up seeing people who are just wearing head-to-toe the latest, the newest, looking like they just walked off a catwalk without a single change to the way a designer might have presented it. That's not individuality. That's not imagination. We'd like to see characters standing out first and foremost, and then the clothes enhancing and framing the character. So you have a very big list and a lot of categories, seven categories, women, men, Hollywood, couples, professionals. By that, we mean people in the fashion business, the originals category and the Hall of Fame category. Let's walk through a couple of the ballot winners and talk about why they made the cut. Now, this choice, I was really glad to see. Misty Copeland, who, of course, has made headlines very recently as the first African-American principal dancer for American Ballet Theater, 
but she's been in the news a lot with films and as the face of Under Armour, and she looks stunning on VF.com. It was a big year for her. I mean, she's been working hard for decades, but all of a sudden you have a best-selling book, you have the ad campaigns. She also was the first black dancer to dance the part of the swan, the white swan and the black swan in Swan Lake. And this is a woman who's used to putting on costume, who's used to wearing makeup, who's used to making graceful entrances, exits. She has poise, humility. She's a fantastic model for young girls to follow. So she, to me, I could really see why she's there. And then I came to Prince Harry. And that did surprise me because, you know, I mean, nothing against Prince Harry, but in this country we know him as quite the frat boy. He's been controversial more than once, but of course he has incredible social standing. And I really, I don't know anything about his sartorial reputation. British men, when they're well-dressed, are better dressed than men anywhere else. They have access to the finest tailoring, and they're used to dressing up and feeling comfortable dressed up. If you look at the quality of Harry's clothes, if you look at the cut, if you look at the craftsmanship, it's the best that there is. And he wears all of those suits and jackets and even sportswear with utter ease. And the message that he's sending out is, guys, you can be beautifully tailored, handsome and masculine and comfortable without being a slob. Well, let's go to another famous Brit, not maybe famous, but certainly revered, and that is the choice of a different generation, Samantha Cameron, the wife of the British Prime Minister. Samantha Cameron gives a very, very strong public impression, and she's representing the Conservative Party, so there's a certain degree of propriety there, but at the same time, she has never really made a slip of either trying too hard or not caring enough. There's never too much makeup. The hair's not overdone. She's not over-accessorized. It's, it's just exactly appropriate for her role, and, that, and that's very important. She's a, a leader in every sense of the word. Vanity Fair, special correspondent Amy Fine Collins. You can see the international best dress list at vanityfair.com. That's it for this episode of The Seams. It was produced by Elaine Heinzman. Our editor is Marcus Rosenblatt. Our intern is Georgie Goldstein. Our web designer is Jess D'Amico. Our theme song, Fortune Cookie, is from the album, The Further Adventures of Low Straight Jackets. And it's used with permission from the band, Low Straight Jackets. The Seams is sponsored by Feel Good Yarn Company. Check them out, feelgoodyarncompany.com. And to see photos from the stories featured in this episode, Please look for us on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook. Just search for The Seams Podcast. And talk to us on Twitter. We're listening. Our Twitter handle is at Seams Podcast. And if you like what you hear on The Seams, we would love it if you would rate our podcast on iTunes and write us a review. How hard is that? Next time on The Seams, do guys really dress for themselves? Or do their moms, their girlfriends, and their wives dress them? 
the like billowy, large, faded gym shirt is their way of kind of telling the world they're not going to adapt. I'm Jackie Lydon, your head seamstress. Thanks for listening. <laughs>